welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey. Uh, I have been enjoying this this new rash of warm weather <laughs> on my own. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> yeah, somehow. Uh, on my way over here, I, uh, I saw a man like dancing down the street, literally. <laughs> and while I was at the stoplight, I realized he was uh, not actually listening to music. He was just insane. So oh, <laughs> he was overcome by the spirit of the vernal equinox. Yes, exactly. And actually like like the like a cartoon dance down the street and then he stopped and then he had his arms out like, come at me, bro, and was like talking to himself. Oh, so a, that's my name. What a great omen. <laughs> So I think that means we're going to have a very hot summer. That's what yes. I I have read somewhere. Yeah, there were no shadows involved. No shadows think. involved. Yeah. Just uh, mildly threatening behavior on a normal city street in, in a normal hey. afternoon on a Friday. Um, so uh, we've taken a lot of um, uh, ideas into consideration for topics. Yes. And uh, you actually suggested this to me. I remember I sat down at Trivia once and you looked at me and you said, I'm going to need you to do more uh, fashion designers. Yes. So uh, I tipped my Im- imaginary hat and I said, your wish is my command. So <laughs> today's episode is called Trivia, but make it fashion, 70s fashion designers. Fashion. Um, so to begin with, I'm going to talk about what's known as the American look. Okay. Okay. So it, the American look is what was defined by what's known as sportswear in the early 20th century. So sportswear is an American fashion term originally used to describe separates. So like a top and a pant okay. or a top and a skirt. Um, but since the 1930s has come to apply, be applied to day and evening fashions of varying degrees of formality that demonstrate a specific relaxed approach to their design while remaining appropriate for a wide range of social occasions. So basically, like, anything that isn't formal dress is sportswear. Wow. Which... That's uh, confusing. It is. But it's it, it had, like, um, I don't know, like a relaxed quality that was inherently American. And this is different from what's known as active wear, which is very hot right okay. now. So like leggings, workout wear. Yeah. That's very hot. Very hot for spring I'm 2019. I'm picturing like a tennis sweater yes. and a tennis skirt as sports yeah. wear. Um, that was the original like implication uh-huh. of it. But then it kind of moved into like, it's day Anything. wear. It's day wear. Um, it is a very broad term, I will tell you. Okay. Um, so sportswear became the defining look for American fashion by mid-century and marked the turning point from American designers copying French fashions to Americans becoming influential in their own right. So the French fashions were very like stodgy and very like well-tailored, very expensive and mm-hmm. a lot of expensive fabrics. And American sportswear kind of took advantage of cheaper fabrics like cotton and linen and made them really stylish by looking like they weren't trying too hard. You okay. know what I mean? Very Coco, like early Coco Chanel mm-hmm. was like sportswear, like just simple and pretty and like this. I just threw this I on. Just threw this on. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to start firstly with Don Emilio Pucci, Marchese de Bersento. Here it comes. Don't worry. This uh, There's plenty of French in here to embarrass myself <laughs> in, with later. So no worries. Um, he was born November 20th, 1914 in Naples to one of Florence's oldest noble families. And he would live and work in Pucci Palace in Florence for much of his life. Pucci Palace? Pucci Palace. Come on down to the Pucci Palace. <laughs> Get yourself <Yes>. a pooch. <laughs> we got yes. pooches all sizes. Oh, all sizes of pooches. Um <laughs> Uh, he was a keen sportsman who swam, skied, fenced, played tennis, and raced cars. So very Italian. So Italian. So Italian. Um, at the age of 17, he traveled to Lake Placid, New York, as part of the Italian team at the 1932 Winter Olympics. Sweet. But he did not compete. Um, after two years at the University of Milan, he studied agriculture at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, where he became a member of the Demestinian Literary Society. I don't know what that is, but um, I'm, it sounds like a lot of smart people getting together and talking about literature. A salon, if you a will. A salon, yes. A real Algonquin round table, if you will. 
It's a little throwback for you. It's a little throwback. So if you didn't hear last week's, it was very good. Uh, in 1935, he was given a full scholarship to Reed College in Oregon in return for developing a college ski team because skiing was like his thing. Okay. Um, he earned an MA in social science from Reed in 1937 and was awarded his doctorate in political science from the University of Florence the same year. So he is very rich. He is uh, <laughs> very, in, like, he's very politically active. Um, he's traveling all over the world. And uh, life is good for Emilio Pucci. Marchese de Barcento. Over at the Pucci Palace. At the Pucci Palace, yeah. And, you know, he'd go to the Pucci Palace in the summers well, and enjoy his... He must summer at the Pucci Palace. Exactly. He'd enjoy his Pucci Gardens and uh, his Pucci garage full of <laughs> Pucci cars. It's <laughs> oh, a funny word. Uh, in 1938, he joined the Italian Air Force uh, and served as a torpedo bomber pilot during World War II, rising to the rank of captain and decorated for valor by the time he left to pursue his fashion career. But that was for the wrong side. <laughs> um, let's see. Yes, it was. <laughs> so during the war, he became a confidant of Benito Mussolini's eldest daughter, Edda. Um, and Pucci played a key role in the plan to save her husband, Mussolini's former foreign minister, Count Galeazzo Ciano, who was on trial for his part in the removal of Mussolini from power in 1943. So he was kind of a good guy. Okay. Um, so the plan involved delivering some of Ciano's papers, which were highly critical of Mussolini, to the Gestapo so that they could be bartered for Ciano's life. After Hitler vetoed the scheme, Pucci drove Edda to the Swiss border on January 9th, 1944, and ensured her escape. Pucci then attempted to flee to Switzerland himself, but he was arrested and transported to San Vittore Prison in Milan. He's at the Pucci Prison. He's at the Pucci Prison. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's the San Vittore Prison. But at the time when he was there, Pucci Prison. Um, He was, oh, well, actually, he was tortured there by the Gestapo in a futile attempt to extract information. Uh, he then managed to escape and reach Switzerland, where he remained until the end of the war. So this is all he did all of this before he He's then, like 30 years old. Yeah. So uh, the first clothes designed by Pucci were for the Reed College skiing team. And his designs came to wider attention in 1947 when he was on leave in Zermatt, Switzerland. Uh, ski wear that he had designed for a female friend was photographed by Tony Frisell, a photographer working for Harper's Bazaar. So it just okay. so happened. That she was in this slinky ski suit and uh, Tony Frisell was like, I got to get this for this high fashion magazine. Uh, Frisell's editor asked Pucci to design ski wear for a story on European winter fashion, which ran in the winter 1948 issue of the Bazaar. Uh, Pucci was the first person to design a one piece ski suit. Okay. So that's like a big snow suit? Uh, more of? like um, more like a slinky skiing cat suit. <laughs> made of stretchy material is it was it functional as a ski suit or is that more for après ski it's more après ski yes so it was so it's like more for hanging out in the lodge and drinking martinis yes. than it is for actually skiing yes down the mountain it, okay yeah, got yeah. you but it was I'm a ski now. suit as one piece so people were like i must have it it's so beautiful um <laughs> so although there had been some experiments with stretch fabrics in europe before the war Pucci's sleek designs caused a sensation, and he received several offers from American manufacturers to produce them. Instead, he left the Air Force and set up an haute couture house in the fashionable resort of Canzone del Mare on the Isle of Capri, as we all have done at one time or another in our lives. Um, so incidentally, his, he used his knowledge of stretch fabrics to produce a swimwear line in 1949. Naturally. But he soon moved on to other items such as brightly colored, boldly patterned silk scarves, which he is still, I mean, the, the fashion mm-hmm. house is still very well known for it today. Yes. I own a Pucci scarf. Sometimes I wear it around my head. Um, I'm not. Rag a little. <laughs> I am a little, uh, I am not as fashionable as most people to tie it around my neck. Like, like, um. Like an airline stewardess. Like an airline stewardess. I was going to say like a Boston Brahmin type, like high end person. <laughs> but a stewardess works too. Um, so Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus encouraged him to use the designs and blouses and then a popular line of wrinkle free printed silk dresses. Uh, he used silk jersey specifically, which is okay. um, made of, it's silk that's cut on the bias. And so it's um, stretchy and form fitting um, and also very uh, washable and wearable. Okay. Because the sink, does silk wrinkle? It does not. Okay. Yeah, it's very nice. It um, doesn't breathe that great, which is very 70s, but either way. 
Um, Pucci added a boutique in Rome as business thrived, helped by Capri's role as destination for the international jet set. So he was like right in the middle of rich people. So by the early 1950s, Pucci was achieving international recognition, receiving the Neiman Marcus Award in Dallas and the Burdine Sunshine Award in Miami. And by the, 19- the Burdine Sunshine oh, Award? Oh, the Burdine Sunshine Award in Miami for being so fabulous. <laughs> Uh, by the 1960s, Pucci was further thrust into greater status when Marilyn Monroe became a fan. Mm. Uh, she was photographed by George Barris and a number of his items in which would be some of her final photographs. So some of the last photographs oh, wow. taken of Marilyn Monroe, she's in Pucci. Um, also nude, but that's an, <laughs> another story. There, it was a nude photo shoot, but also she had some Pucci clothes too I'm- that she was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about that. All right. Um, As the decade progressed, his designs were worn by everyone from Sophia Loren to Jackie Kennedy and later day pop icons such as Madonna in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. Um, In fashion history, especially during the period of the 1950s and 1960s, Pucci was a perfect transition example between luxurious couture and ready to wear in Europe and North America. So in February 1959, he married Christina Nanni uh, from Rome, about whom he later remarked, quote, I married a Botticelli. Is that good? I don't know. I've been <laughs> I've been looking at this line for the past couple of days, and I'm like, I don't know if that means like, oh, I married a beautiful, voluptuous beautiful. woman. Yeah. Look at how it look. Look at how gorgeous she is. Or was he like I married a Botticelli? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he could have married a Picasso. He could have married been. a Picasso. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So they had two children, Alessandro and Laudomia. Uh, Alessandro died in a car crash in 1998, six years after his father died. But back to his earlier days. In 1965, New York ad agency Jack Tinker and Associates was hired by Braniff International Airways to update their image. Mm-hmm. Um, the agency's Mary Wells hired Alexander Gerard to remodel the terminals and Pucci to design new clothes for the air hostesses. Well, he already knew how to do a scarf. Yeah, so, so done. The rest of the outfit just oh, makes well, itself. Wait till you hear about what the outfits look like. Um, as the ads put it, it was, quote, the end of the plain plane. <laughs> Yes, very good play on words. Uh, Pucci would end up designing six complete collections for Braniff hostesses, pilots, and ground crew between 65 and 74. A mark of his impact was that by 68, Barbie had versions of all his first four uniforms. (laughs) These avant-garde creations were designed as individual components to be added or removed as weather dictated. Uh, The uniforms included turtlenecks, t-shirts, crop jackets, and culottes. Uh, among the more unusual innovations was a bubble helmet, which was a clear plastic hood worn by flight attendants between terminal buildings and aircraft to protect their hairdos from rain and the blast of jet engines. I'm going to show you a picture. And uh, I, they are literally like, when you hear that description, you're like, oh, it's like a plastic, like you see an old lady wear to the grocery okay. store around her head. No, it was literally like a space helmet that was like <laughs> around their head that they would like click onto their heads. It was no. crazy. So it was supposed to look like space age. Yeah. You know, modern 60s. Uh, So there were two designs of the bubble helmet that were dubbed Rain Dome by the Braniff Airways. Uh, Pucci also incorporated Gerard's uh, BI logo into some of his prints. So Emilio Pucci was very into like signing his prints. Mm -hmm. And that's why, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but they're very, his um, work is still very recognizable and easy to identify. Mm -hmm. Um, so Pucci's influence also extended to the moon. What? Yes. Oh, let me tell you. He suggested the three bird motif for the design of the Apollo 15 mission patch. Although the crew replaced his blues and greens with a more patriotic red, white, and blue. So he designed the mission patch for Apollo 15. Okay. So he died in 1992 of a heart attack. Um, and his daughter, Laudomia Pucci continued to design under the Pucci name. And the French LVMH uh, luxury goods empire acquired 67% of Pucci in 2000, in the year 2000. Uh, Laudomia became image director while LVMH brought in major designers such as Christian Lacroix, who was the creative director from 2002 to 2005. And in October 2005, Matthew Williamson and Peter Dundas from 2009 to 2015 and Massimo Giorgetti from 2015 to 2017. Unfortunately, there is currently no head designer for the house of Pucci. Hmm. Are they just reusing old designs? Um, they're using they're using like a team of designers, okay. which all fashion houses have. But usually, you have like a head designer who's like, "Okay, we're going to do like the, these are the color schemes, yeah. and like this is the general like this look I want to go sheep. for." Yeah, sheep. It's all sheep all the time. Fluffy sheep. 
That's what I want. Shorn sheep. Jumping oh my God. sheep. Jumping sheep. We're sleeping. There's pillows. It's like a Serta <laughs> mattress commercial. So fashion. Honestly, we could do this. Uh, <laughs> we could do yeah. this. I mean, we had a vision. Boom. Right there. Right off the bat. Um, so House of Pucci is... There's rumors that Pucci is not doing great. Mm. When it was under Matthew Williamson, it was really, it was like back in a major way. Cause it kind of, after he died, it kind of like, cause it changed hands so many times and mm-hmm. there really wasn't like a consistent thread. And the sixties look wasn't that huge towards the, you know, the early two thousands. So, um, it's been kind of up and down. And so mm. the idea right now is that Pucci is not doing great, but they're still putting out uh, ready to wear every spring and fall. So, so how does anybody know if they're looking at a Pucci? Okay, so dresses and blouses and anything poochy are very late 60s. They have like a swirly type print um, and they're usually multicolored. Um, they're bright, 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 bright. Um, the different styles of prints, like the actual like print style can be in a bunch of different colors. Mm-hmm. So he had a different colorways for each pattern, which is really cool. And he also was very liberal with how the patterns were like put so it could like be rotated like rotated or, or like okay. put on an angle or whatever. Um, or like cut away so you, you could do like a border on the bottom of a blouse or a dress or like make the back different from the front, which is really cool. Um, they were printed on silk jersey almost universally, mm-hmm. sometimes on uh, velvet for winter, but nine times out of ten it was silk jersey. Um, simple cuts like shift dresses, maxis, and button-up blouses, just like dead simple stuff, um, usually unlined. And a great way to idea Pucci is to look for his signature in the print. Okay. He signed it Emilio, his first name. So somebody like Nancy Sinatra with her white boots that are made for walking. Exactly. You can see this. her in a little shift dress, mm-hmm. little like tent tent looking thing in like a wild, like yellow, hot pink, green, and then little white boots. And then you're like, oh my God, that's a Pucci. But if you think it's, if you think you found a Pucci like in a vintage store or whatever, you just got to kind of like look around mm-hmm. and you'll see the Emilio like signature. Cool. Yeah, very easy to find. So, next up, Roy Helston Froick, born April 23rd, 1932 in Des Moines, Iowa, a.k.a. Halston. One word, Halston. Uh, Halston developed an interest in sewing from his grandmother, and he began grading hats and altering clothes for his mother and sister as a boy. Um, in 1952, Halston moved to Chicago, where he enrolled in a night course at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and he worked as a window dresser. Um, in 1953, he opened his own hat business, and Halston's hats were bought by actress Kim Novak, Gloria Swanson, Deborah Kerr, and Hedda Hopper. And his first big break came when the Chicago Daily News ran a brief story on his fashionable hats. This was like hat time. Like the 50s was like hat town. Prime, prime hat time. Prime hat town USA. Yep. Um, in 1957, he opened his first shop, which was called the Boulevard Salon on North Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And it was at this point that he began to use his middle name as his professional moniker. Um, During his childhood, he had been referred to as Halston to distinguish himself between uh, him and his uncle Roy. So everyone called him Halston and Halston is kind of like, I don't know. It's like, it sounds mm, high end, you know? So he moved to New York City in late 57, first working for milliner Lily Dashay. And within a year, he had been named the co-designer at Dashay, becoming acquainted with several fashion editors and publishers, and left her studio to become head milliner for department store Bergdorf Goodman in their Ooh. custom milliner salon. Um, so he, d- he the, the turning point of his career was when he um, designed the pillbox hat for Jackie Kennedy that she wore oh. to her president's inauguration. So the little pink pillbox yeah. hat, that's a Halston in 1961. Oh. So when he moved to designing women's wear, Newsweek dubbed him the premier fashion designer of all America. So he hit it big. Jeez. Jackie Kennedy wore his little hat. That's all it took. So when hats fell out of fashion, he moved on to designing clothing, and he opened his first boutique on Madison Avenue in 1968. Um, the collection that year included a dark jade velvet wedding gown for advertising executive Mary Wells Lawrence. And she was married to the CEO of Braniff International Airways. Oh. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. His name was Harding Lawrence, and uh, she would be instrumental in bringing Halston to Braniff in 1976 to design Braniff's hostess, pilot, ticket agent, and ground personnel uniforms. So this was after Pucci did it? This was after okay. Pucci, yep. <clears throat> um, apparently, Braniff was all about partnering with fashion designers to make wow. their hostess uniforms. That's kind of it's fun. It's very strange. So he launched his first ready-to-wear line, Halston Limited, in 1969. Uh, Halston's designs were usually simple and minimalist, but sophisticated, glamorous, but also comfortable at the same time. He liked to use soft, luxurious fabric like silk and chiffon, 
And he later told Vogue that he got rid of, quote, all the extra details that didn't work, bows that didn't tie, buttons that didn't button, zippers that didn't zip, wrap dresses that didn't wrap. I've always hated things that don't work. Good. I love that. Yeah. I he hate was, when there's like extra sh- tassels on oh, things. Oh, yeah, I know. That's your, you Ugh. hate that so much. Get out yeah. of here. Yeah. Well, then you would love a Halston. Okay. Um, Halston is dead simple. You know, like a 70s maxi dress with a strong shoulder and it goes straight down. You got like that little belt, like buckle mm-hmm. belt thing with like maybe a little shiny something. That is like so Halston. A little bauble. He always worked in like black bone toe. Jump, jumpsuits? Jumpsuits, jumpsuits. Yep. Long jumpsuits, really deep V necklines, that kind of thing. Very like sexy, sexy uh, Studio 54 okay. type look. Yep. Um, so another design characteristic was the use of bias. So he believed that clothes cut and sewn from the bias of every fabric can develop a sexy, polished image. I got to tell you, I don't know what that means. Okay. I'm going to tell you what that means. <laughs> so <clears throat> in a, in like a fabric, you got a warp and a weft, right? Okay. So she's, she's making motions like she took her. <laughs> yeah. Like make her, she made her fingers into a waffle fry. Yeah. <laughs> I did. That's what I did. So you've got the warp running horizontal okay. and the weft running vertical or vice versa. I don't remember what it is. Depends. Mm-hmm. So you could rotate it. You could rotate it. Thing. Doesn't matter. Warp and weft. So by cutting something on the bias, normally you would, um, if you were making a shirt, you would lay out your fabric and the warp would be going, you know, up and, up yeah, and down, up and down. And the weft mm-hmm. would be going back and forth. And then you would just cut, 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 and then sew and whatever. Like wrapping paper. Like wrapping paper. What cutting on the bias means is that you turn it 90 degrees. So the warp and weft are on an angle. Okay. And what that does, it automatically makes the fabric stretchy. Oh, Because okay. when you pull something in the opposite direction mm-hmm. of where it's running, it makes it a little bit stretchier. Okay. And it has some give. And by cutting fabric on the bias and then making clothes out of that, it like adheres to the curves of the body and it flows oh. so much nicer. Okay. So when you think of like like a 1930s gown, like mm-hmm. a satin gown that's like very close to the body and beautiful, that's cut on the bias. Okay. And a lot of times the um, the seams will be at angles too to kind of like take advantage oh, of that. Right. And so it's very flattering. It's a very flattering way to cut fabric and um, make just about any type of fabric um, more comfortable and... Uh, like easier to work with okay. Um, because no matter what kind of fabric it is, there will always be some sort of stretch when it's cut on the bias. Wow. So there you go. There you go, everybody. Jeff Mayer taught me that. Thank you, Jeff. He doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, he, uh, okay. So in past history, people had the interpretation that shows a woman's body shape was mainly through the curve of the clothing. Um, Helson changed the fitted silhouette and created a new definition of showing the female body shape by allowing the natural flow of the fabric to create its own shape. So this idea of instead of um, tailoring something so tight to the body to actually show a woman's shape, mm-hmm. cutting it on the bias allowed the fabric to kind of flow over your body to make it a little bit more flattering. Okay. And it would still be sexy without being like like stuck to okay. your person. Painted on. Painted on. Exactly. It's a little bit more like flowy, like, oh, I just threw this on. Like pajamas. Um, Halston said, pants give women the freedom to move around like they've never had before. They don't have to worry about getting into low furniture or low sports cars. Pants will be with us for many years to come. Probably forever if you can make that statement in fashion. <laughs> pants. <laughs> pants. I did it. I made pants for the first time. That's what They'll I did. They'll be with us for many years to come. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to make a statement, but we're going to be wearing pants for a while. So this is like early <laughs> 70s. Like everyone, if you wanted to wear a dress, you wore a dress. Like yeah. Only like like super fashionable women wore pants all mm-hmm. the time, you know, well, like or lesbians. When you watch... <laughs> When you watch like award shows and there's a lady in like a tuxedo, it's always kind of like it's you still don't shocking. expect it. Yeah. yeah. It's still shocking. Um, so yeah, so it sounds crazy that he was like, Pants, what a thing. It as it turns out it was. Here we go. <laughs> so um also in the nineteen seventies, his ultra suede suit was a big hit. Okay. So ultra suede is like um like your couch material. microfiber microfiber that's okay. what ultra suede is so it's not actually suede it's um like regular fabric that's been treated to be mm. kind of felted and soft um and that was wasn't used in a major way in clothing until halston okay so it was not only like 
like a sexy cut of clothing, but it was also soft to the touch. So it made it like extra glamorous okay. and sexy. So. So you could reach over to someone and say, and like, this, Ooh, gabardine? what is this, gabardine? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so he brought functionality into fashion. So this more of like comfortable sexiness. Um, he designed the ultra suede shirt dress and reintroduced pants for women, as I mentioned. Pants. Pants. It's going to happen. Mark my words. Uh, the shirt dress was interpreted as an elongated men's shirt, and he also included em- elements of sportswear and combined that into women's clothing, merging features from both women's wear and men's wear together. So the shirt dress was originally made to look like like you stayed over at a man's house oh, and yes. you just threw on a shirt and like threw a belt over Wearing it. Wearing Uncle Scrooge's nightgown. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But like if you're a, if you're a supermodel, Great. you look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> You don't look like Scrooge's <laughs> sleepwear. <laughs> so his boutique drew celebrity clients like Babe Pally, Angelica Houston, Jean Tierney, Lauren Bacall, Margot Hemingway, Elizabeth Taylor, Bianca Jagger, and Liza Minnelli. And both Jagger and Minnelli would become close friends of his. Um, so from 1968 to 73, his line earned an estimated $30 million. Uh, in 1973, Halston sold his line to Norton Simon Inc. for $16 million, but remained its principal designer. This afforded him creative control with near unlimited financial backing. And in 1975, Max Factor released Halston's first namesake fragrance for women called Halston. Uh, by 1977, sales from the perfume had generated $85 million in sales. Whoa. Yeah, he was, he was it in the 70s. He was all of it. Like you had to have a Halston and wear Halston perfume and like dance at Studio 54 in like a Halston jumpsuit. Um, Throughout the 70s, Helston had expanded his line to include menswear, luggage, handbags, lingerie, and bedding. Uh, Vogue later noted that Halston was responsible for popularizing caftans, which he made for Jackie Kennedy, uh, and Matt Jersey halter top dresses and polyurethane into American fashion. Ah, yes. My favorite of the fabrics, mm. polyurethane. Comfortable polyurethane. Breathable polyurethane. <laughs> Is that like what they just make like raincoats out of? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I... I I can't like conjure up a Halst- a polyurethane Halston, but I'm sure there's one out there. But the caftans are for like lounging on your husband's yacht. Yes. Right. Yep. And drinking a, a very wide martini. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, he popularized caftans and caftans is a very 70s thing. Yeah. Or a very Lauren thing. Sure. Depending. I mean, ca- caftans are coming back, by the way. Um, so he was influential in design of uniforms. So in 77, he was contracted by Braniff Airways to create a new look for their flight what? attendants. <laughs> yes. He created... Another muted, one. I know. He created muted brown uniforms with a distinctive H logo, and he created interchangeable separates and shades of bone, tan, and taupe, which the airline extended to the seat covers using brown Argentinian leather. The entire scheme was dubbed Ultra Touch by the airline in reference to Halston's ultra suede designs and was extremely evocative of the late 1970s. Uh, you yeah, think? I was gonna say, they spent all this money on leather and all this fabric and stuff like that, and they're, they're not around anymore. No, they got trashed by like 79. Um, an elaborate party was thrown in February 1977, dubbed Three Nights in El Capulco, to introduce the new Halston fashions along with the new and elegant Braniff International Airways. Braniff Chairman Harding Lawrence, his wife Mary Wells Lawrence, First Lady Lady Bird Johnson, and Halston himself, along with his Halstonettes, were in attendance for the grand presentation. So, was this like what Firefest was supposed to be? Yes, but like <laughs> 70s. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just cocaine, bowls yes, of oh cocaine. Oh my God, bowls of cocaine is terrible. So Halston's ladies... Uh, the women that the the models that hung out with him were known as the Halstonettes. The Halstonettes. Yes. So they were in attendance for the grand presentation. Um, and these women included Pat Cleveland, Angelica Houston, and Beverly Johnson, among many oh, others. Oh, wow. Um, so Halston and his entourage would arrive at selected points during the party in outfits that matched the deep tones of Braniff Airways' new color schemes. Uh, that the would beautiful be shades of brown. Yes, brown. Brown and, and tan. And tan. Yes. It was uh, part of the new so-called elegance campaign. Yes. So the party and the Halston creations were a hit not only with the fashion press, but also with Braniff employees who thought that they were the easiest and most comfortable uniforms they had ever worn. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for them. Yeah. Um, He was asked by the U.S. Olympic Committee to design the Pan American Games and U.S. Olympic teams uniforms in 1976. And he also designed the uniforms for the Girl Scouts, uh, the New York Police Department, and the Avis Rent-A-Car System. 
Wow. Yeah, he was super into uniforms. Very good at like making people what comfortable. He, he did for the Girl Scouts. Um, I mean, probably like little green jumpsuits. I'm assuming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can look it up. I'll yeah, post pictures of all funny. like like typical designs mm. of these fashion designers, but. Um, yeah, I imagine he was very popular because he made like comfortable uniforms. What's the difference between a cat suit and a pantsuit? Uh, a cat- jumpsuit. Wait, jumpsuit, pantsuit, cat suit. Go. Okay, so a pantsuit is something that like Hillary Clinton wears. Okay. So that's like a, a suit jacket and pants. Okay. And they're usually the same color and usually in a color other than, well, no, they're usually in like just they're whatever color you want. Okay. Uh, a cat suit is like a slinky, like, like, skin tight jumpsuit okay so that's like you like Catwoman. Uh, yes that's a cat suit okay um a jumpsuit is um like a like a cat suit but more comfortable <laughs> so uh a jumpsuit is like pants and a top that are like connected together as a onesie yes and okay. there's either like a button in the back that you can like take it off and you if you have to pee you have mm-hmm. to take the whole thing off yeah but it is notoriously extremely comfortable to wear yes so great that's thank it. you you're welcome hey anytime so in 1983 halston signed a six-year licensing deal worth a reported one billion dollars with the retail chain jc penny jc penny yes a billion dollars a billion dollars so the line was called halston three it consisted of affordable clothing accessories cosmetics and perfume ranging from 24 dollars to 200 dollars so at the time, the move was considered controversial as no other high-end designer had ever licensed their designs to a mid-price chain retail store. Wow. Um, while Halston was excited about the deal and felt that it would only expand his brand, the deal damaged his image with high-end fashion retailers who felt that his name had been cheapened. Oh. Bergdorf Goodman at the time dropped his Halston Limited line from their store shortly after plans for Halston 3 were announced. And the a jerk move. I know. Because they were like, oh, it's not even like fancy anymore. Forget it. If if the commoners can wear this, then forget it. We don't even want a part of it. So the Halston 3 line for JCPenney was poorly received and was eventually discontinued. Ooh. However, this would pave the way for other high-end designers to sell their lines at stores of varying price levels in the future. Mm-hmm. So now you can get Coach at Macy's. Mm-hmm. You can get, you know, Tom Ford. You can get YSL. Yeah. You can get any of that you get stuff. Fancy things at Target. You can get fancy things at Target. Now, you know, Target did those um, collaborative lines for a very long time with yeah. fashion designers, and they were, I think, really successful right. for a while. Um, I think the Peter Pelotto line kind of like was the beginning of the end for that because that was not nice. Anyway. <clears throat> So, also in 1983, Halston Limited, which was owned by Norton Simon Inc., was acquired by Esmark Inc., and after the acquisition, Halston began to lose control over his namesake company and grew frustrated. But he still had a billion dollars. He still had a billion dollars. Um, But as the label changed hands, it would be owned by Playtex International, Beatrice Foods, and four other companies. Uh, He continued to lose control and by 1984 was banned from creating designs for a Halston enterprise. So he was kicked out of his own company. So he attempted to buy back his company, but Halston Enterprises was eventually acquired by Revlon in 1986. Okay. And he was paid a salary by Revlon, but had stopped designing clothing for the company and continued designing for family and friends, most notably Liza Minnelli and Martha Graham. Okay. The choreographer. Um, The line continued on with various designers until about 1990 when Revlon discontinued the clothing portion of the line, but continued selling Halston perfumes. So in 1988, Halston tested positive for HIV. And after his health began to fail, he moved to San Francisco, where he was cared for by his family. And on March 26, 1990, he died of Kaposi's sarcoma, an AIDS-defining illness, at the Pacific Presbyterian Medical Center in San Francisco. Uh, his remains were cremated. Um, and in 2010, Halston was the subject of the documentary called Ultra Suede in Search of Halston. So again, Halston clothing is very, like, easy breezy, like, comfortable jumpsuits, long maxi dresses, very, very 70s. If you can imagine, like... Diana Ross wearing mm-hmm. something that's definitely like a very Halston-esque kind of look. Um, Halston and the Halstonettes were like key people in the Studio 54 like okay. era. He would like roll up with all of these supermodels like on his arm and like hanging off him and they would dance and dance and do cocaine and it was like the best time ever. Um, <laughs> so, so now my third uh, fashion designer is Yves-Henri Donna Mathieu Saint-Laurent, born August 1st, 1936 in Oran, French Algeria, to French parents. Oh, in Algeria. Yes. Okay. Uh, his parents were named Charles and Lucien André Mathieu Saint-Laurent. 
Uh, he grew up in a villa by the Mediterranean with his two younger sisters, Michelle and Brigitte. 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 Michelle and Brigitte. Um, they're not mentioned again. Uh, <laughs> Saint Laurent liked to create intricate paper dolls, and by his early teen years, he was designing dresses for his mother and sisters. Common the theme. Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 17, Saint Laurent moved to Paris and enrolled at the Chambre Syndicale de la Haute Couture, where his designs quickly gained notice. Um, in 1953, Saint Laurent submitted three sketches to a contest for young fashion designers organized by the International Wool Secretariat. Oh, oh, the, have you heard, the Wool Secretariat? Have you heard of the Wool Secretariat? <laughs> Big wool, sheep, Big sheep, sheep, if you will. sheep, Ooh, sexy sheep. We're coming back to the sexy sheep, fashion sheep, fashion sheep. So Barney. Bah. <laughs> so he won third place. Um, subsequently he was invited to attend the award ceremony held in Paris in December of that same year. And during his stay in Paris, St. Laurent met Michelle, he met Michelle de Brunhoff, who was the then editor in chief of the French edition of Vogue magazine and a connection of his father. Okay. Um, de Brunhoff known by some as a considerate person who encouraged new talent was impressed by the sketches St. Laurent brought with him and suggested he become a fashion designer. Huh. Oh, Oh, Okay. Uh, Saint Laurent would eventually consider a course of study at the Chambre Syndicale, uh, the council which regulates the haute couture industry and provides training to its employees. Uh, Saint Laurent followed his advice and leaving Oran for Paris after graduation began his studies there and eventually graduated as a star pupil. For more information on the Chambre Syndicat de haute couture, you mm-hmm. can listen to episode six, Fashion Kills. Thank you. That's my first uh, round of fashion stuff and will not be the last. Uh, so later that same year, he entered the International Wool Secretariat competition again and won, <laughs> beating out his friend Fernando Sanchez and young German student Karl Lagerfeld. Ugh. That's how old Karl Lagerfeld was. <laughs> so <clears throat> shortly after his win, he brought a number of sketches to de Brunhoff, who recognized close similarities to sketches he had been shown that morning by Christian Dior. Uh, knowing that Dior had created the sketches that morning and that the young man could not have seen them, de Brunhoff sent him to Dior, who hired him on the spot. Because they had the same, like, design sensibility okay. was the idea. Not like she thought somebody had copied something. No. Someone else. <laughs> no. He definitely um, just, they both had the same kind of fashion sensibility, and he mm-hmm. was like, you should work for Dior. Um, so although Dior recognized his talent immediately, Saint Laurent spent his first year at the house of Dior on mundane tasks, such as decorating the studio and designing accessories. Like an intern. Like an intern. He basically treated him like an intern. So eventually, however, he was allowed to submit sketches for the couture collection. And with every passing season, more of his sketches were accepted by Dior. Um, in August 1957, Dior met with Saint Laurent's mother to tell her that he had chosen Saint Laurent to succeed him as a designer. His mother later said that she had been confused by the remark as Dior was only 52 years old at the time. Both she and her son were surprised when in October of that year, Dior died at a health spa in Northern Italy of a massive heart attack. If you remember, it was either a bone, like a fish bone in his his sandwich, or he was having sex. Either way, he died of a heart attack. (laughs) Again, Either way, a bone was involved. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Either way, a bone was involved. So... In 1957, Saint Laurent found himself at age 21, the head designer of the House of Dior. Wow. Uh, At 21? At 21, in like one of the greatest modern fashion houses ever. Mm -hmm. Um, The first like high fashion house that made like a major impact in 20 and 21st century fashion. At 21, he was the head of this fashion house. Oh my gosh. 21 year olds can't tie their own shoes nowadays. No. So his spring 1958 collection almost certainly saved the enterprise from financial ruin. The straight line of his creations, softer version of Dior's new look, catapulted him to international stardom with what would later be known as the trapeze dress. Okay. So trapeze dress is basically... Very um, unflattering on anybody except <laughs> for a yes. six-foot-tall so, <laughs> supermodel. So a trapeze dress, you imagine like, um, so you got a dress on. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of it like like coming from your armpits to your waist and there being like a defined waist. And then from your waist, there is a skirt that goes down either an eye line where it kind of like flows free from the hip Mm -hmm. or it's like, you know, curved down to like skim your body. A trapeze dress, instead of the skirt starting at the waist, it starts at the armpits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the idea is, is that it creates like a very clean line and a very like flowy shape without a lot of like bells and whistles. But again, if you have breasts... Or any kind of curve. Or a broad shoulder or a big butt or whatever. It just like, 
you look like you're wearing like a baby doll dress. Mm. But if you're, you know, a high fashion model, it looks in- great. Incredible. Fine. Yeah, whatever. So um, others included in the collection were dresses with a narrow sh- shoulder and flared gently at the bottom. Uh, at this time, he shortened his surname to Saint Laurent because the international press found his hyphenated triple name difficult to spell. Oh, sure. um, so his fall 1958 collection was not greeted with the same level of approval as his first collection, and later collections from the House of Dior featured hobble skirts and beatnik fashions that were savaged by the press. So a hobble skirt is a skirt that instead of from the waist going out, mm-hmm. um, it goes from the waist and then it... <laughs> And then it goes tight, 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 all the way down. And then is extra tight right by the ankle. So like longer than a pencil skirt. Longer than a pencil skirt, extra tight. And actually like, it, and that's why it's called a hobble skirt. Because your feet can only go. Because it literally hobbles you. Yes. So they weren't super popular. Well, yeah. Um, they were probably a, meant for secretaries. <laughs> they were probably meant for, you know, not being stood in mm-hmm. or walked in, you know, conceptual at best. Um, and then the beatnik look was very f- French, you know, mm-hmm. black turtlenecks, th- slim pants, berets, a long cigarette holder, a red lip, you know, people didn't like it. Apparently the beatniks were not popular in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, they were considered like, um, like bizarre, like wild things. Okay. Uh, so their style was not cool. Um, so in 1960, Saint Laurent found himself conscripted to serve in the French army during the Algerian War of Independence. Uh, there was speculation at the time that Marcel Boussac, the owner of the House of Dior and a powerful press baron, had put pressure on the government not to conscript Saint Laurent in 1958 and 1959. But after the disastrous 1960 season, reversed course and asked that the designer be conscripted so that he could be replaced. Please take him away. <laughs> Please take him away. That's we awful. hope he dies in Algeria. Oh, jeez. So Saint Laurent was in the military for 20 days before the stress of hazing by fellow soldiers led him to being admitted to a military hospital. Uh, He received news that he had been fired from Dior while he was there. Um, This exacerbated his condition and he was transferred to a military hospital where he was given large doses of sedatives and psychoactive drugs and subjected to electroshock therapy. Um, Yeah, I know. Seems like escalated was, quickly. From what I understand, it seems like he was a very sensitive mm-hmm. individual who was prone to um, fits of high emotion okay. and rage. And so this would continue throughout his life. And he himself traced the origin of both his mental problems and his drug addictions to this time at the hospital. Oh, man. So after he was released from the hospital in November 1960, Saint Laurent sued Dior for breach of contract and won. So after a period of convalescence, he and his partner, industrialist Pierre Berger, started their own fashion house called Yves Saint Laurent, YSL, with funds from American millionaire J. Mack Robinson. And the couple split romantically in 1976, but remained business partners until the end of Yves Saint Laurent's life. So in the 60s and 70s, the firm popularized fashion trends such as the beatnik look, so that started to become like hot, Mm -hmm. Um, safari jackets for men and women, tight trousers, tall thigh-high boots, and arguably the most famous classic tuxedo suit for women in 1966, which was known as Le Smoking. Oh, yes. Yes, Le Smoking. Uh, uh, Dinner jackets were known as, are called smoking jackets Mm -hmm. in uh, Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, making that kind of like a sexy women's cut and making it look like a tuxedo outfit um, was referred to as Le Smoking by the Yves Saint Laurent. So that was so hot. People loved it. Oh, my God. I'm going to wear a tuxedo. I'm a lady. Get out. Um, He also did. Pants. (laughs) Pants. Helston. He predicted it. Um, So he also did a Mondrian collection where he's do these little like shift dresses and tent dresses. Okay. um, That were had Mondrian prints mm-hmm. on them, which was really cool. And those, that was huge in 65. Uh, St. Laurent also started mainstreaming the idea of wearing silhouettes from the twenties, thirties and forties. So kind of going retro. Um, and this was the first time that this was like happening in fashion okay. where people were looking back in All a major right. way. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent brought in new changes to the fashion industry in the sixties and seventies. And he opened his Pret-a-Porter house, YSL Reeve Gauche in 1967, where he was starting to shift his focus from haute couture to ready to wear. So Pret-a-Porter, Pret-a-Porter. Pret-a-Porter. Which is just ready to wear. Which is just cheaper. And I mentioned this in episode six, where ready to wear is made with machines and it's a little bit more industrialized. And so the clothing is cheaper, while haute couture is made 
by hand. Mm -hmm. Every aspect of it is made by hand. Um, So he was kind of focusing on like getting more of his fashions out into the world and making more money, frankly. Um, So he was the first French couturier to come out with a full ready-to-wear line, and his first customer was Catherine Deneuve. Ah, yeah. You may have heard of her, French actress. Uh, So during the 60s and 70s, he was considered one of Paris's jet set and he was often seen at clubs in France and New York City, such as Regine's and Studio 54, and was known to be both a heavy drinker and a frequent user of cocaine. Mm-hmm. That tracks. Yeah. When he was not actively supervising the preparation of a collection, he spent time at his villa in Marrakesh, Morocco. Um, the ready-to-wear line became extremely popular with the public, if not with the critics, and eventually earned many times more for Saint Laurent and Berger than the Haute Couture line. Oh, wow. Uh, however, Saint Laurent, whose health had been precarious for years, became erratic under the pressure of designing two haute couture and two ready-to-wear collections every year. Which, um, to be fair, Karl uh, Lagerfeld was doing every year. Yeah. He was doing two haute couture, two ready-to-wear, and like 96 looks per, which is insane. Yeah. And granted, he had a team. And Chanel has, I mean, is just one of the biggest most insane fashion houses you can even like get behind. So there is, he wasn't just like alone sketching, but the fact that Chanel was putting out that many, and there are almost no haute couture houses that are doing at that uh-huh. level anymore. is kind of amazing. Um, so back to Yves Saint Laurent. So he increasingly turned to alcohol and drugs. And at some shows he could barely walk down the runway at the end of the show. And he had to be supported by models. Um, and they are not strong. I don't know if you've ever seen a model, but they're not strong. Um, so after a disastrous 1987 ready to wear show in New York city, which featured a hundred thousand dollar jeweled casual jacket only days after the black Monday stock market crash. So it seemed a little tone deaf at the time. Uh, he turned over the responsibility of the ready to wear line to his assistants. And although the line remained popular with his fans, it was soon dismissed as boring by the press. So uh, in 1983, Saint Laurent became the first living fashion designer to be honored by the Metropolitan Museum of Art with a solo exhibition. In 2001, he was awarded the rank of the Honorable Legion by French President Jacques Chirac. And Saint Laurent retired in 2002 and became increasingly reclusive, living at his homes in Normandy and Morocco with his pet French bulldog, Mujique. Um, a favorite among his favorite female clientele, Saint Laurent had numerous muses that inspired his work. Chief among them was Victor. Uh, Victoire Dutrelot, who once said of Saint Laurent, he didn't love women, he used them. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> he was apparently very violent. He would throw things mm. at people. He would like fly into rages. Um, he uh, was very abusive to his muses. He was, um, he didn't really treat them like people, no. uh, but because he was so, he was like a fashion genius for whatever that means. Um, he kind of got away with it, which is shitty. I mean, and I feel like nowadays I was actually just talking about this with my coworker, Andrew, that like this idea of like the creative genius, either an artist or a designer or whatever, there are fewer and fewer people now who will put up with their garbage just because they're a genius. Like that, that sheen is kind of off of those fields. Mm -hmm. And so people can, especially women feel a little bit more comfortable standing up to giants of the industry and say, right. no, actually, you know, you can't talk to me like that. Mm-hmm. Like just, you can, you know, still put out good work and not like I'm scream at me yeah. or beat me or whatever you do. So that thankfully is becoming less of a thing. Um, good job, um, everyone. Yeah. Yay. Good job. Everybody it took till 2019 for this to happen. Uh, among Saint Laurent's other muses was Lulu de la Falaise, who is the daughter of a French marquis and an Anglo-Irish fashion model. She also designed scarves. She died recently, a couple years ago. Um, and uh, she also designed jewelry. She was cool. Okay. Um, also, Somali supermodel Iman, whom he once described as his, quote, dream woman, wife of David Bowie, but also an incredible um, model and activist and uh, makeup um Oh, yeah. Yeah, she has her whole line of makeup. Like, I think it's called International Beauty or something Mm -hmm. like that. But she was the first um, makeup, I guess, she's not an artist, designer, makeup, like, CEO. Uh, Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Um, Entrepreneur. Sure. Makeup entrepreneur who created uh, makeup for darker skin women. So she's known for that and not just being David Bowie's wife. I apologize for that. Um, also, uh, the aforementioned, uh, French actress, Catherine Deneuve was also his muse. Uh, 
Um, he died on June 1st, 2008 of brain cancer as, at his residence in Paris. According to the New York Times, a few days prior, he and Berger had been joined in a civil union. When St. Laurent was diagnosed as terminal, with only one or two weeks left to live, Berger and the doctor mutually decided that it would be better for him not to know of his impending death. Oh, wow. Berger said, quote, I have the belief that Eve would not be strong enough to accept that. Yeah. Um, his body was cremated and his ashes were scattered in Marrakesh in the Majorelle Garden, a residence and botanical garden that he owned with Berger since 1980 and often visited to find inspiration and refuge. Berger said at the funeral service, quote, but I also know that I will never forget what I owe you and that one day I will join you under the Moroccan palms. So uh, Yves Saint Laurent as a house, as a fashion house. So Yves Saint Laurent is probably best known for reworking their brand every couple of years, especially most recently. So it's been known and branded alternately as E Saint Laurent, mm-hmm. YSL, mm-hmm. and currently it's known as just Saint Laurent. Okay. Um, famous designers who have been creative directors for YSL include Tom Ford and um, Eddie Sliman. Um, and it is currently helmed by uh, designer Anthony Vaccarello. And it's still, it's still very big. Um, it makes a ton of money. I don't know how often they do haute couture anymore, um, but they definitely do at least uh, ready-to-wear line every spring mm-hmm. and, fa- and fall. I feel so, like I've seen cosmetics and perfume. Yes. So Two. that's another thing. So YSL, um, a lot of fashion houses have branched into like accessories, but most often and more recently, they're branching into makeup. Mm-hmm. And makeup uh, is like they're making bank on that yeah. stuff. Because it costs... 25 cents to manufacture yeah, a tube 25 of cents to manufacture and you're buying a $38 lip gloss yeah. or whatever. And people pick it up because the packaging is very heavy. It feels very luxurious. Um, YSL is, you know, well known as having like pretty high end makeup. It's good stuff. Tom Ford though is like the tip top of designer makeup. Okay. Like I once like got a two ended like black eyeliner, Tom Ford black eyeliner. It was heavy. It felt like jewelry. It was amazing. Cool to the touch. It made the best, sharpest, most beautiful black wing you've ever seen. I still have it. It dried out three years ago. I still have it. Every so often I pull it out of my thing and I'm like, oh, Tom you Ford. hold it. I hold it. I, I hold it close to my face and I just kind of gently. Yeah, it's very high end, very good. Uh, Chanel too is very high end. Mm-hmm. Their nail polish is like huge. Right. Um, so yeah. So that's uh, 70s fashion designers in kind of a little nutshell for you. Thank you. Maybe I'll do 80s soon. We'll see. Oh, boy. We'll see. So my quiz today is called Studio 54, a quiz on the Hollywood studio system and events in 1954. Yes. Okay. Question number one. July 19th, 1954 was the date of the release of the first single entitled That's All Right by this rock and roller who would go on to dominate music, movies, and the hearts and minds of conspiracy theorists everywhere. Name him. Question number two. The studio system in Hollywood basically ran moving making for the majority of the 20th century. The first huge success of the Warner Brothers studio was also the first feature-length talkie, which debuted in 1927. Warm up that voice and tell me what the name of that movie was. Question number three. January 21st, 1954, the first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, was launched in Groton, Connecticut. The person smashing the champagne bottle was none other than the First Lady of the United States. What was her name? Question number four. The major studios in the system were known as the Big Five. Fox Film Corporation, Paramount Pictures, RKO Radio Pictures, Warner Brothers, and what lion of the film industry? Question number five. September 3rd, 1954. Hi-yo! The last new episode of What Radio Program is broadcast on this date after nearly 3,000 episodes and 21 years on the air. Question number six. Ironically, Hollywood is extremely successful during the Great Depression, mostly because people like the escape. FDR once said of this actress, When the spirit of the people is lower than at any other time during this depression, it is a splendid thing that for just 15 cents an American can go to a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby and forget his troubles. What sweet singing and dancing baby is he talking about? Question number seven. March 4th, 1954. This Canadian bebe was born on this date and went on to act in movies Waiting for Guffman and Home Alone. But let's be honest, she's best known for her wigs and her pajama vests. Who is this comedian? 
Question number eight. The youngest of the big five, RKO Pictures, emerged in 1928 after a merger with Radio Corporation of America. RCA's well-known logo of a dog looking confusedly into an Edison phonograph bell was originally a painting done by British artist Francis Barad, whose title and image was trademarked. What is the title of the painting and subsequent logo? Question number nine. November 28, 1954. The death of this Italian physicist occurred on this day, whom many referred to as the architect of the atom bomb. He was certainly busy during his 53 years, winning the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1938, and even being one of the 16 scientists who have elements named after them. Name him. And finally, question number 10. Often in the studio system, actors and actresses have their names changed by the studios to make them more marketable, meaning white or American-sounding. I'm going to name four actors' given names and one of their best films, and you tell me what their star name was. One, Roy Harold Scherer Jr. in Giant. Two, Margarita Carmen Cancino in Gilda. Third, Archibald Leach, North by Northwest. And fourth, Marion Morrison, The Quiet Man. I'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with answers. I am so fab. Check out, I'm blonde, I'm skinny, I'm rich, and I'm a little bit of a bitch. I wanna dress you up in silk, tap it up, tailor these clothes to fit your guilt. What's your size? This purse can hold my I'm ready to crush this. Okay, great. <clears throat> I'm very excited. I'm very excited about it. Well, we'll talk about it one okay. there. Okay. Question number one. July 19th, 1954 was the date of the release of the first single entitled That's All Right by this rock and roller who would go on to dominate music, movies, and the hearts and minds of conspiracy theorists everywhere. Name him. Elvis Presley. Elvis, Elvis Presley. <laughs> okay. I'm so drunk. Um... Elvis Presley, Elvis Aaron Presley, had a twin brother that was stillborn. His name was Jesse Garen Presley. Um, he apparently was haunted by this his entire life, and his mother Gladys often said he had the energy of two people, which is spooky. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> spooky. Okay, question number two. The studio system in Hollywood basically ran movie making for the majority of the 20th century. The first huge success of the Warner Brothers studio was also the first feature-length talkie, which debuted in 1927. Warm up that voice and tell me what the name of the movie was. The Jazz Singer. It is The Jazz Singer. As it turns out, it's considered the first talkie, but the majority of its scenes did not have live recorded sound. They actually dubbed it later. Okay. Um, so just that's just like an interesting bit of trivia. Question number three, January 21st, 1954. The first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, was launched in Groton, Connecticut. The person smashing the champagne bottle was none other than the First Lady of the United States. What was her name? Okay, here is the only thing that's going to trip me up because okay. I'm trying to think when the inauguration dates were. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking if by this point they had already changed it to January 20th that this would be Mamie Eisenhower. Is that your final answer? <laughs> Yeah. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> uh, the Nautilus was also the first sub submarine to complete a submerged transit of the North Pole on August 3rd, 1958. Ooh. There you go. Question number four. The major studios in the system were known as the Big Five. Fox Film Corporation, Paramount Pictures, RKO Radio Pictures, Warner Brothers, and what lion of the film industry? MGM. It is MGM, headed by Louis B. Mayer. Uh, the, chief the chief publicist of MGM in 1916, his name was Howard Dietz, created the Roaring Lion logo as an homage to his alma mater's mascot, the Columbia University Lion. Mm. The Roaring Lion's name was Leo, but the sound of his roar wasn't added until 1928. I think you mentioned this in an earlier episode. 
Question number five, September 3rd, 1954. Hi-yo! The last new episode of What Radio Program is broadcast on this date after nearly 3,000 episodes and 21 years on the air? The Lone Ranger? It is The Lone Ranger. The TV series was also a huge hit and ran on ABC from 1949 to 1957. Also, the guy who played Tonto in the TV show Uh was actually a Native American man. Oh. He was Mohawk, and I forgot his last name. It's not Iron Eyes, something else. Steel, oh, good. silver heel. That's silver good. Heel. It wasn't just like yeah, he wasn't somebody... like a, an Italian guy. Yeah, which is which happened more often than it. Yeah, or Lebanese. You know, yeah. like a lot of yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, question number six. Ironically, Hollywood was extremely successful during the Great Depression, mostly because people liked the escape. FDR once said of this actress, when the spirit of the people is lower than at any other time during this depression, it is a splendid thing that for just 15 cents, an American can go into a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby and forget his troubles. What sweet singing and dancing baby is he talking about? Shirley Temple. It is Shirley Temple. Did you know (laughs) that at the time, false claims circulated that Temple was not a child, but a 30-year-old dwarf? Due in part to her stocky body type. Oh, that's me. Apparently, the rumor was so prevalent, especially in Europe, that the Vatican dispatched Father Silvio Masante to <gasps> investigate whether she was indeed a child. What? Yeah. I uh, had never heard of that. I know. I had never heard of that. Also, they said that she couldn't be a kid because she never had any missing teeth oh. during her, like when she would be on screen and stuff. Huh. Um, and the thing was, they just used flippers. Like, yeah. they just, <laughs> yep. They just, like, packed it in with, like, a fake tooth. Um, and also they said that they filed her adult teeth down to make it look like baby teeth. Mm. She was actually a child, everyone. That's not a real thing. <laughs> also, by 1939, there were 15,000 movie theaters in the United States, more than banks. Um, and the number of theaters per capita was twice that of the mid-1980s. So wow. movies were like a big... Well, that was the only place you could yeah. see movies, really. Uh, okay, question number seven. March 4th, 1954. This Canadian bebe was born on this date and went on to act in... <laughs> Went on to act in movies Waiting for Guffman and Home Alone. But let's be honest. She's best known for her wigs and her pajama vests. Who is this comedian? Well, Lauren. <laughs> I think that's Catherine O'Hara. It is Catherine O'Hara. Did you read the... Uh, baby. The baby. Uh, did, you, did you read her article in Vulture? Yeah, oh, so good. She's so funny and so good. Guys, if you don't watch Shit's Creek, you should be watching it. There's four seasons of it on Netflix. The fifth season is airing now. Um, I personally didn't start watching it until like season three because the name it turned me off. Don't let the Don't name let the fool name, you. No, it's an amazing television it's show. So funny, it's the best thing to come out of Canada, <laughs> probably ever. Yeah, Moira Rose. Her character of Moira Rose is. I would just if there were no other characters in the show, I would just watch her like swan around yes. a mid western Canadian town. I'm assuming. <laughs> It's so, her clothes are so good. Everything about, she's so amazing. She's hysterical. Catherine O'Hara. And you can take that to the bank. You can take that to the bank. Catherine O'Hara, if you're listening, we love you. She's not, she doesn't care about this. Anyway, question number eight. That's true. I don't know that for a fact. If you, if any of you. Hey, Catherine. If any of you know Catherine O'Hara, please give us, give us a, no, don't tell us. Just tell her. Yeah. She should listen to our podcast. Okay. Question number eight. The youngest of the big five, RKO Pictures, emerged in 1928 after a merger with the Radio Corporation of America. RCA's well-known logo of a dog looking confusedly into an Edison phonograph bell was originally a painting done by British artist Francis Barad, whose title and image was trademarked. What is the title of the painting and subsequent logo? His master's voice. It is his master's voice. (laughs) You're just killing this. So according to contemporary gramophone company publicity material, the dog, a terrier named Nipper, had originally belonged to Barad's brother, Mark. When Mark Barad died, Francis inherited Nipper with a cylinder phonograph and recording of Mark's voice. Francis noted the peculiar interest that the dog took in the recorded voice of his late master emanating from the horn and conceived the idea of committing the scene to Cam. That's sad. I've never heard about that. Isn't that the most heartbreaking thing you've ever heard? So the RMSC, the science museum that I used to work for, had a giant nipper. Still has a giant nipper. I shouldn't say it. But it's like a a fiberglass nipper that Mm -hmm. was on top of a radio uh, building in Rochester for the longest time when it was still RCA radio. So we have it in... Well, they have it. I don't work there anymore. But yeah, he's very cute. We... Had interns cleaning him at one point. It was very sweet. 
Okay, question number nine. November 28th, 1954. The death of this Italian physicist occurred on this day, whom many referred to as the architect of the atom bomb. He was certainly busy during his 53 years, winning the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1938, and even being one of 16 scientists who have elements named after them. Name him. This is, is this Enrico Fermi? It is Enrico Fermi. He discovered the neutrino, uh, which he named, in, which makes sense, very Italian. Neutrino. <laughs> Uh, you could just, yeah, you got to pinch nothing your, there. Yeah, it's a neutrino. It's nothing. And, uh, has the element, uh, fermium. Okay. Here we go for all the marbles. Okay. Question number 10. Often in the studio system, actors and actresses had their names changed by the studios to make them more marketable, i.e. white or American sounding. I'm going to name four actors given names and one of their best films. And you tell me what their star name was. Okay. Okay. One Roy Harold Scherer Jr. And giant. Give me this one last. Okay. Margarita Carmen Cancino and Gilda. Rita Hayworth. Rita Hayworth. You got it. Archibald Leach, North by Northwest. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Marion Morrison, The Quiet Man. Uh, that's John Wayne. It is John Wayne. Okay. All right. Here we go. <gasps> I'll say it Give one more time. Give me this t- name again. Roy Harold Scherer Jr. And he was in Giant. <sighs> <laughs> You're sweating. No. <laughs> This is the closest I've ever been to a perfect game. Okay. I am I'm stuck between two. Okay. Roy Harold Scherer Jr. All right. I'm just going to go with this one and I think it's not probably not right, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Errol Flynn. No. Is it Clark Gable? No. It's a uh, Clark Gable. That's actually his given name. Ah. It's Rock Hudson. Ah. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. I know. I'm so sorry. Ah! It's okay. Next time. Next time. Next time. <laughs> you were so close. You got you got nine point seven five points. Oh. <laughs> I thought this was it. I know. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was very proud of the bebe question, yeah, though. That's great. I went down like a YouTube spiral too of like looking oh. up. There is a 20 second clip that, that someone posted on Twitter at one point of her, all the instances of her saying baby. It's, I'll show you after we're done recording. It's so funny. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, thank you, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm sorry. I just came so close. Uh, I hope you all um, also did well on that quiz. And thank you uh, for listening to my um, 70s fashion designer yeah. episode. Let us know how you did. Um, you can tweet at us at Miss Info Pod. Um, we have a website www.misinfopod.com. We have a Facebook page, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. And you can also email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Yep. And you can uh, listen to us on that, stream us on that aforementioned website, or you can get us wherever podcasts are found. Yeah. Except for Spotify. (laughs) For now. Which I'm not bitter about. Um, Also, from our website and our Twitter page, we have a little link to a PayPal if you want to toss a few bucks our way. That'll help us with our equipment upgrades and um, keeping the podcast running. Uh, Big shout out to my mother-in-law, Jennifer G., who gave (laughs) us a really, really nice donation. Thank you, Jennifer. That was so lovely. We were incredibly touched. Yes. Um, So thank you for that. And uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.